Well, today we are picking back up in our series on John's Gospel. We've been in this series for some time, and uh, John's Gospel is a unique gospel. Of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is the most unique. The other three were written with knowledge of one another, yet John, 90% of what he records is unique to his Gospel. John himself is is a very unique person. All the disciples, all 12 of of the disciples uh, would die for what they believed. They would die as martyrs with the exception of the disciple John. God allowed John to live. And one of the reasons that he lived longer than any other disciples is that near the end of his life, some 50 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, John would write five letters in our Bible. He'd write the book of the Gospel of John, the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he'd write the, the book of Revelation. And the section we're in today, we start Jesus' most powerful longest discourse in John's gospel. You see, where we start today, Jesus is on the last night of his life. He shared a Passover meals with his disciples, Passover where they would remember in the Old Testament that they were set free from Egypt by trusting in the blood of the lamb. And it's at this Passover meal, which Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. He's the, the lamb whose blood would be slain for the sins of the world that he begins to teach his disciples a five-chapter discourse. Taking nearly a quarter of John's gospel focuses on one discourse during the last night of Jesus' life. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 31 through 35. And if you would please, in your homes... Stand for the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If the Son of Man is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, Yet I, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Well, you may be seated. Today in our passage, we have a major point. One one big theme that, that John is wanting to highlight in this section. And it's this, that our love... For one another is a testimony to all peoples that we are Jesus' disciples. That, that, uh, that our love for one another is to be a testimony to all people that we follow Jesus, that we believe in Jesus, that we've been transformed by his grace. 
And when it says our love for one another, Jesus in particular here is speaking to his followers. He's speaking to the disciples. So he's speaking here that how we as Christians love one another, how we, the church, love one another, is to be a testimony to all the world that we are redeemed, that Christ has saved us, that we are a new creation. Now, he's not saying that we don't love those who aren't followers. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying there's a special love that the follower of Christ has one for another. Well, in verse 31, it says, when he had gone out, this section starts right after Judas has departed. Jesus is sharing this meal with his disciples. And in it, it says that he loved them till the end, meaning he loved them to the utmost. And he's going to show them what that looks like over the course of the next uh, the meal as he washes their feet. The next day as he goes to the cross and in his resurrection. And in this meal, he reveals something. He says, one of you will betray me. And the disciples begin to debate and ask, who is it? And Jesus is seated at this meal between two disciples. On one side, John, his young cousin, the youngest of the disciples, called the disciple whom Jesus loved, known as uh, the sons of thunder with his brother James. And on the other side, Judas. And when he says, someone will betray me, John leans back into Jesus and says, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one with whom I dip. And it doesn't appear that the other disciples quite catch what he's saying. And Jesus dips with Judas and says, what you're about to do, go do quickly. And Judas departs. And once Judas, the false disciple, the one who looked like he was a follower, who acted like he was a follower, who spoke like he was a follower, but he didn't trust Jesus, he didn't believe him as Messiah, he had his own agenda. Once the false disciple has departed, Jesus begins a message to the 11 true disciples, to the 11 who have placed their faith in him, and he's going to give them this, his final teaching this most important teaching before he goes to the cross. And this teaching will cover several chapters. He says, he starts this teaching by saying, Now, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is also glorified in him. At this point, the glorification of Jesus Christ begins. The events of the cross have started. Judas has departed to go to the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin and to the Roman authorities. And later he's going to meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus will be arrested. You see, the glorification of Jesus takes place at the cross. Where God receives the glory at the cross. And that glorification will continue as he defeats death and rises from the dead. You see, the glory of God shines through Jesus as God receives all glory because he pays the price for us on the cross. And that's glorious, magnificent news. You see, one of the things about false religion, false religion knows that something's not right. Something is wrong. 
Something's wrong with us. We call it sin. Other religions call it different things, but something's not quite right. And we've got to make things right with our creator, with the deity, with the higher power, whatever false religion calls their God. And all false religion does this. You've got to do good works to appease God. You've got to pray enough. You've got to pray in a certain place. You've got to reach a a state of nirvana. Something you have to do to make things right with you and your creator. That's what false religion teaches. But the one true religion of Jesus Christ is that you don't do anything. You see, false religion always glorifies man. If I can work hard enough to make things right between me and God, I get the glory. But Christianity, we see that you can't work hard enough. God is perfect. He is holy. And no matter what you do, you can never be good enough to appease our holy, righteous God. So God comes and does it himself. He takes the wrath of God upon him. He goes to the cross in our place. And in that, God gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. We can't take any of it from him. He gets all glory in our redemption. And Jesus says, now. Now he is going to be glorified. Now this has started. This term glorified in Scripture is never used of men or of angels. It's used of God alone. And God's going to be magnified on the cross as we see the justice of God, as we see the deep mercy of God, as we see the wrath of God poured out, yet we see the love of God, we see the faithfulness of God, we see all that there on the cross as God himself is glorified. Throughout this discourse, Jesus is going to speak of his glory. In fact, in in chapter 17, verse 4, he's going to say, He has glorified God while he was here on earth. And now he'll glorify him fully as he goes to the cross and is raised from the dead. This section will get more into God's glory because that covers this entire discourse is the glory of God as Christ goes to the cross. That God the Father is glorified, that the Son is glorified, that God is glorified in him. In verse 33, Jesus says to his disciples, little children. This is the only time in the Gospels this phrase is used. Jesus uses a term for children several times, but here he uses the term little children. Technia, little little children. He could have used a lot of other words, but he refers to this group of grown men, these disciples, seated around table as little children. Now think. As an adult, for someone to call you a child feels quite insulting. For someone to call you a little child, this term little child means a child that's dependent, that needs help, that can't take care of themselves. Somebody's got to take care of them. Somebody's got to meet their needs. This can feel like an insulting term, but Jesus uses this as a term of endearment, a term of comfort, that he cares for them like a father does a little child. Andrew and Mary Kennedy were missionaries in China during 
the 1930s and on into World War II. And during World War II, they stayed in China as long as they could. But eventually it reached a point where if they were going to leave, they had to leave now. The Japanese were pressing in on one side. The communists were coming down on the other side. And they knew they had one shot to leave. And the family, the mother, father, the two little girls boarded a small plane to take one of the most dangerous flights you can take on earth. They were going to fly over the towering, rugged Himalayan mountains into India to escape. Reflecting back on this as an adult, one of those little girls was asked, Were you afraid? She said, yeah, I was afraid, but fear did not dominate me. I was comforted. I was okay because that entire flight, I sat in the arms of my daddy. And my mommy and daddy, they kept singing these words to me over and over and over again, safe in the arms of Jesus. Safe in the arms of Jesus. You see, John, he'll pick up on this term, little children. In fact, it becomes his favorite phrase for the church. When he writes his epistles, in fact, when he writes 1 John, 1 John is a five-chapter commentary on these verses we're covering today. When he writes that book, he refers to the church seven times, and he says, little children, a term of endearment, a term of comfort, a term of love. Now, I'll tell you, church, friends, we are in a difficult season. A season where it's understandable to have fear. Fear is going to come. Some of you have experienced this very firsthand. All of us have been impacted by this, by the coronavirus. Some of you have had loved ones who have fought this and battled this. Some of you have loved ones who have died. Many of you have lost job or lost income streams and are feeling this. Many of us are struggling with being at home. We're all feeling this and there is reason for fear. But in the midst of it, Jesus says, little children, little children, you can be comforted. I'm with you. We don't have to know where we're going, how we're getting there, but we know that he is with us. All the ways that we try to control our life, try to put our securities in place through our finances and through different things, those are all being stripped away. And God is saying, I'm your comfort. I'm your source. You're secure in me. Little children, rest in me. And here Jesus speaks to his disciples. And he says, little children, I'm with you yet a little while. And I'm going to go away. And where I'm going, you cannot come. What he means by that is, I'm going to the cross. And little children, disciples of mine, you can't go to the cross. You can't make things right between you and God. No matter how hard you try. No matter how much you pray. No matter how much you go to church, no matter how much uh, effort you put into it, no matter how kind and, and loving you are, you can, oh, things can only be right, right between you and God by God himself who steps in and pays the price, the redemption price for us. And that's what Jesus Christ did there on the cross. 
During this time, we don't understand most of what God is up to. I was reading the Gospel Coalition this week and heard John Piper say that God is up to billions and billions of things. 99.9% of which we don't know and we won't know we won't understand. But we can take comfort in Him. We can take delight in Him. We can rest in Him in the midst of this difficult season. In verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Again, this is another phrase that's only used here by John. A new commandment. That phrase hadn't been used in the Gospels until now. A new commandment. And again, this is a phrase that John will pick up and he'll use over and over again in his epistles. A new commandment. That you love one another. Well, that commandment doesn't really sound that new. Back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God says that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what makes this commandment new? Well, let's just go to John's epistle. We're going to look at John's epistle a little bit here. 1 John chapter 2, verse uh, 7 and 8. He says this. He says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What he's saying is this is no new commandment. You've had it. It's an old commandment, but it's new. What's new about this commandment? Well, Jesus says here that we're to love one another just as he has loved us. That's how we're to love one another. That's the newness of this command, that we're to love like Christ has loved us. And the scripture says that he loved his own to the end, to the utmost. He washed the disciples' feet out of love. He goes to the cross out of love for us to reconcile us to God the Father. This is all done in love. And now he tells the church, he tells his disciples, his followers, that the love that he has for us, we are to have for one another. Let me tell you, the question is, can can we imitate the love that God has for us? I'll tell you, it's not possible. We can can try to imitate God's love for us, but that doesn't work very well. Many have tried. No, we can only have this love as the light is in us. As as the light shines through us. Listen to what he says in 1 John 4, 10 and 11. He says, in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. This word propitiation here. It has the idea, it's, a, it's a, a, a term we don't use a whole lot, but it means that God's wrath was satisfied by Jesus. You and I, we deserve God's wrath, yet Jesus, out of love, takes that wrath upon himself. He takes the punishment that you and I deserve. In 1 John 2, 
9 and 10, he says, Whoever says he's in the light yet hates his brother is still in the darkness. But listen to this. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. See, you, you can't imitate this love. It comes as you abide in the light, as you abide in Christ. And as you abide in Christ, the love of Christ begins to shine through you to others. Brothers and sisters, are is it hard to love other Christians at times? I know in my life I've experienced that. But there's times that it's hard to, to love a brother or sister in Christ. And God's been showing me that I need to pray and call out to him, not for them to change. He can take care of that if he wants to. But to pray that God, help me to love them right where they are. Show me what it means to love another person. Show me what it loves to, means to love a brother and sister in Christ, even when I may not understand why they're doing what they're doing or understand what's going on. Even when I may feel like uh, foolishly I'm in the right. Help me to love, Lord. Change me, God. You see, as we abide in Christ, we can love one another. But you cannot do it in and of your own power. It's only as we rest in Jesus Christ. In verse 35, he says, By this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That the, the mark of a Christian, the clearest mark that we are a follower of Christ, is our love for one another. How we love one another. I was in the, the Middle East about a year and a half ago. And I was uh, with a pastor friend of mine, and we were uh, actually just getting to know each other better at that time, sharing stories. And we were sharing stories about our life. And, and one of the things he began to tell me was his story of his wife and how his wife became a Christian. His wife was from Brazil, and he said that she, uh, in high school, was an exchange student for a few weeks in the United States. And she stayed in the home of a Christian family. She didn't uh, trust Christ at that time and really wasn't very interested, but that family loved her well, and she kept up with them. Later, as an adult, she took a job as a flight attendant and was stationed in the Middle East. She reached out to that family because she was lonely and said, hey, I, I need someone to talk to. And they said, we've got friends right where you are. So she began to connect with those friends right there in the Middle East, and these were believers who invited her into their home. They took her to their small group. They introduced her to people her own age in their church. And through of watching Christians love one another, through seeing how Christians loved one another, God used that to awaken her to life, to the truth of the gospel, by how Christians love one another. Church, I'll tell you, we are in a unique season. It's a difficult season, but it's truly unique. And I can't tell you what all God's up to, but I can tell you this. God calls us to love one another. And that our love as a church, one for another, will be a testimony to all peoples that we are followers of Jesus Christ.
Over the last few weeks, I've been uh, reaching out to many of our ministry partners and missionaries around the world. And um, there was one missionary I've, I've reached out to a few times, and he sent me a, a text a few weeks ago. And he said, hey, pray for us. We've been told we got 24 hours to make a decision. We either leave now or we hunker down for the long haul because all flights are going to be shut down and we're not going to be able to leave. And they live in a country that's 99% Muslim. They live in the most densely populated city on earth, one of the poorest cities on earth. And the, the concern is that as things get bad, that in a poor country, rioting, looting, violence is going to happen. And just like so many of us, and so many people making difficult decisions, they had to make a decision that they felt the Lord was leading them to. And many of our missionaries have made a difficult decision. Some have come back to the States for a season. Some have remained. They made the decision to remain. I reached out to him earlier this week and just said, How are you doing? Is there anything we can help you with from halfway around the world? And he said, I'm okay. He said, my family's okay for now. We're fine. Lord's sustaining us. But then he said, the guy I partner with, the pastor here in this country who's indigenous, who I work with, he's not doing too well. All of his chains of, of funding and all of his resources, they've, they've been cut up and dried off. You can help him. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of what a Christian does. You see, where we're living in a world where everybody is scrambling to have their own needs met. How much toilet paper can I get? How much stuff can I get to make sure I'm okay? As Christians, we look and we go, hey, can I share? Can I help you? Can I, can I help, help meet your needs, the needs of someone else? That's what the world looks at and goes. That's a love we haven't seen before. That's a love we haven't tasted before. So when Jesus says a new commandment, just love one another just as I love you, yes, that's a new commandment that we're to love one another like that. But it only happens as we remain in him. Later in this discourse, in chapter 15, he's going to say, uh, he's the vine, we're the branches, and as we remain in him, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to love like this. You cannot do it in and of yourself. Francis Schaeffer, in his book called The Mark of a Christian, defined this love a little bit. He said there's two things that primarily mark the unique love of a Christian. He says, one, we seek forgiveness. When we have wronged somebody, we apologize, we confess, and we come to a brother or sister and say, I've wronged you, I've sinned against you. And he said, secondly, we forgive. We forgive others. That's the uniqueness and the beauty of the love that Jesus has for us there on the cross. We're forgiven so that we can forgive one another. And that's a love that this world can't understand. And that's a love that during this season that God is pulling us deeper and deeper into, to loving one another. But what does that look like? I found that 
my children, my wife, my friends, those closest to me. Taste love typically by time and attention. Giving attention, loving someone, giving them time, serving. And I think now is a time where God is stripping us of all our distractions, where we can set down our phones from the endless news cycle that we want to keep checking and seeing what the, the latest 30 minutes is, how it's changed our world again. And we can give attention to one another. And we can love one another. And we can forgive one another. And we can extend grace to one another. That we can be present where we are. You see, Jesus spent time with his disciples. He loved them well. He loved them to the end. He loved them all the way to the cross. And we can have that same love for one another. But it only happens as we abide in him. I think God's given us an opportunity as a church to figure some of these things out. We're still, we're still learning, asking God, in this season, what does it look for Harvest Church, our members, our people, for us to love one another well? As I mentioned earlier, we're starting some new small groups. They'll be based online because part of loving each other well during this season is being physically apart. Yet by God's grace, we can still connect via technology. So we have groups that are continuing to meet. And if you're in a group or if you're a group leader, we would encourage you, find ways to meet. We'd love to help you and coach you in how to use the technology to continue to meet because you need one another. I was talking with a group of guys this week. Just checking in. How are you doing? And I heard this over and over again. The first couple of weeks, things were different. And, and, and it sort of felt okay. And, and, and the newness of it was, was something that uh, sort of there were some perks in there. But now, starting to get lonely. Starting to get restless. I need somebody. And there's many like that. We need one another as a church. So continue to connect with one another. We have members that are calling one another. We have people that are driving by those who are in nursing homes to, to wave and just give a human touch in some way in this season as best we can. You can pick up the phone and call somebody. Ask God, God, how can I love the church? How can I love your people during this season? Hey, if you're Hearing this and you have needs, maybe they're physical needs, food needs, you've lost a job and you're in a tough spot, maybe you're just, you're lonely and you have needs. If you have needs, please let us know. Allow us as a church to operate as the church is called to operate, to love one another. We want to do that as well as we can. So let us know. One of our pastors, Wes Sleckman, has been, um, he's over our care and our groups. So if you have a need, you can email any pastor on our staff. But Wes in particular is, is uh, filtering those. So Wes at harvestmemphis.org, you can email Wes if you have a need. Or maybe if you know somebody that has a need in our body that's being quiet and, and, and we need to know about it. So church, this is a unique season. And I pray that during this season that we would love one another well. That like Jesus said, little children, we don't know where everything's going. We don't know what all God's up to. But we know that he's good. We know that he loves us. 
and that he's called us to love one another. So in these crucial days, in these historic days of the life of our church and in the life of our world, may we love one another well. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Your word is good. Your word is true. Your word speaks to us. And Lord, I pray that your word has gone forth, not because of myself, but because your word is true and your word is powerful. Your word accomplishes what you desire for it to accomplish. And Lord, I pray that as a church, as we've been in this season for, for a little while now, and, and we're looking, going, what is, we may be in it longer. We don't know. We can't plan everything out. Lord, as we abide and draw near to you, may that abiding and drawing near to you move us outward, that we might love one another, that we might love the church well, and that as the church loves uh, one another well, that it might be a testimony to the world that you are the risen Savior who's in the world today, who's sovereign, who's still in control, who knows everything going on, that none of this surprises you, and you are up to billions of things 99.9% of which we will not know or understand. So Lord, may we trust you deeply. I pray for the people hearing this. That we find our delight, our joy, our comfort as we rest safely in the arms of our Savior Jesus. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.